Hello and welcome to What on Earth, the podcast in the Environmental Investigation Agency, or EIA. Last week saw Zimbabwe host what it called an elephant summit for itself and several other African nations which are eager to restart illegal international trade in ivory to cash in on their stockpiled elephant tusks. Meanwhile, at the other end of the conservation spectrum, the UK Ivory Act is due to come into effect next week, banning virtually all trade in ivory in the country. I'm Paul Newman, EIA Senior Press and Communications Officer, and today we're going to be taking a look at these developments with Senior Wildlife Campaigner Lindsay Smith and Wildlife Campaigner Rachel McKenna. Lindsay, Rachel, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Now, the international ivory trade was banned by CITES, that's the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, uh, back in 1989, in response to catastrophic levels of poaching. As a result of it, poaching fell and elephant populations began to recover, right up until the ban was seriously undermined by two CITES-approved one-off sales of stockpiled ivory. Lindsay, can you tell us, how did those one-off sales come about in the first place and what was their impact? Um, So, as you mentioned, the ban came into effect in 1989. Um, And then in 1999, in response to what at the time appeared to be a stable rise in elephant population numbers, as well as having increasing costs associated with managing stockpiles and a need to um, better fund community conservation and community development, several Southern African countries approached CITES for approval to generate a once-off sale of their government-owned ivory stockpiles to China and to Japan. And at the time, China and Japan were the largest domestic markets for ivory. So they, the first sale took place in 1999, which generated approximately uh, $5 million. And thereafter, in 2008, uh, the same parties approached CITES again for approval for a once-off sale to, this, to both China and Japan, which generated approximately $15 million in sales. Many of the arguments for these sales focused on the need to try to flood the market with legally sourced ivory to drive down demand for illegal uh, illegal um, sourced ivory, as well as just uh, general demand and interest in ivory. However, due to many factors, um, including the fact that there were at that time many domestic legal markets, what we saw after 2008 was a dramatic increase in the illegal killing of elephants to secure ivory for both the legal and the illegal trade. So the illegal killing of ivory uh, of elephants did not respect international boundaries, uh, unfortunately. And so we saw elephants being poached across the African continent. And many countries then struggled to prevent the laundering of illegally sourced ivory into their legal domestic markets, which then, of course, further exacerbated the issue. And so since then, we've seen a concerted effort to close the legal domestic uh, market trade uh, globally, which has seen many countries close their markets like China, the US, many African states, and very recently the UK. Excellent. Some fairly familiar arguments were aired at the Zimbabwe summit last week, um, particularly one which we've heard several times that a legal supply of ivory would satisfy consumer demand and would therefore undermine criminals um, who are trying to supply the black market. Um, I I guess if we were any doubt before the impact of these one-off sales exposed this falsehood for what it is, so, so why is it still being trotted out? I mean, I suppose the question is, why aren't people accepting that there is a correlation between legal ivory sales and increases in poaching and illegal wildlife trade? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very good question that I think many of us are struggling to understand what the argument is to reconstitute trade uh, in light of those concerns. And from what we know from the research around the, the impact of legal trade and the killing of 
illegal killing of elephants. So what is quite interesting that some people may not be aware of is that after the second sale took place in 2008, there was actually, uh, if you will call it, a moratorium or a, a resting period at CITES where they would not consider any further reinstituting of one-off sales or anything like that, which ended in 2016. And that essentially is when we saw the next attempt by these Southern African countries to reinitiate trade again. Um, and a similar pretenses again, or similar arguments should we say, that it would help to drive conservation funding and community beneficiation. And the simple answer is that we haven't seen any real methodology or any kind of instruments that have been put in place that would respond to the threat of illegal killing uh, that we know happened last time. So we're not 100% certain why the argument is still being, uh, being used, but certainly we do recognize that there are lots of um, known and very valid concerns and issues around managing existing elephant, population, elephant populations, um, as well as an increase in conflict between humans and elephants in some of these countries. So I think, yeah, we're also waiting to see what the argument will be as to why trade is, should be or should be reconstituted. So something you touched on there in your in your response, um, it's another argument used by the pro-trade lobby is that yeah, the money made from these sales gets ploughed back into conservation efforts and um, benefits local communities uh, living around and near um, elephants. Is there, has there ever been any truth in this, as far as we know? Well, one thing that should also be kept in mind is the relatively low amount of funds generated at the two or the two last legal sales. As I said, I think it was about $5 million for the first sale and about $15 million for the second. Uh, and since then, what we have seen is a dramatic decrease in the appetite uh, globally for, for ivory. Um, and that's also largely been due to work that's been done over the years around behavioral change and reducing perceptions about the value of ivory in those demand markets. Um, having said that, though, uh, we do recognize, and I think everybody who works within the ivory ban space is very cognizant of the challenges facing many of the Southern African uh, elephant range states. Um, but we do recognize that then we need jointly and collaboratively to develop more viable and sustainable financial instruments to fund conservation and communities as needed. But we don't believe that legal ivory sales from stockpiles is the answer to that. What was actually the outcome of the summit? I mean, um, did they get the consensus they were looking for um, at the end of it? I know they were looking for all the other countries participating um, to sign up to a, a unified um, what demand pledge to seek um, the ivory trade be reopened. How, how did that how did that work out for them in the end? Yeah, you're correct. So the objective at the outset was to create a unified African stance around reopening ivory trade to benefits. Uh, those range states that are essentially the ones managing these elephant populations on behalf of the global community. Um, as, it, as, uh, as far as we can ascertain from information coming out of the summit, very few of the African range states attended the summit uh, or even invited to participate. And in the end, as, as I said, as far as we can ascertain, only five countries have so far signed on to what's been called the Huangay Declaration, um, which will then seek to approach CITES again to reinitiate trade. Um, they're claiming that they are going to uh, create viable instruments for this, uh, this market trade. But as of yet, we haven't seen any real 
tangible outcomes from the summit. So we're watching the space very carefully and particularly at COP19 coming up in November, uh, we are anticipating another move by these parties um, to either to reinitiate trade uh, or perhaps to put forward some proposals about how trade could be better um, implemented and managed. Is, is is that the next step for them? If, if, if Zimbabwe and these other countries are, are determined to push ahead and try to get the legal ivory market up and running again, what would be the next step for them? They'd have to go to CITES and ask permission for it, I guess? Uh, yeah, essentially under, under CITES, they would have to get approval for this. Um, however, there have been rumblings and threats over the years um, around CITES, around its fit for per purpose uh, in terms of the ivory trade and the implications for these countries. So quite a few of these countries, uh, we could potentially see them threatening again to withdraw from CITES uh, or to completely uh, renege on their obligations under CITES uh, and to continue uh, to reopen trade, should we say. Um, and obviously there are implications for that if, if they were to proceed with trade without CITES approval. Um, and that would include things such as having trade sanctions under CITES um, and also that could result ultimately in severe financial loss for these countries that rely strongly on what we call wildlife economy um, or generating finances from, from um, animal products and uh, derivatives and the like. So it's not a, it wouldn't be um, a step that they would make lightly. Uh, I'm sure they've thought about the implications of leaving CITES. Uh, and so I think we'll wait to see again what the what the outcome of this COP is uh, up in November. I mean, yeah, it occurs to me that if these nations are to quit CITES to press ahead with rogue ivory sales, if they're not given permission to, 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 to hold them, how would that even work um, in the way that you know, the world has changed so significantly since the last sale? I mean, China has now shut down its own legal ivory market, and previously it was the biggest in the world. Um, I, I guess what other markets are there to, to actually purchase their ivory? Well, I know Japan um, still has uh, domestic ivory trade, but I don't imagine Japan's going to buy the estimated hundreds of millions of pounds worth of ivory that is, is touted as being up for grabs. Um, and I suppose also I'd ask what, 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 if, what were the implications for any country that wanted to buy this ivory? I mean, wouldn't you have to leave CITES to buy it as, as well as to sell it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so any country that is uh, a member party to CITES would have to either uh, uh, be in breach of their obligations or would have to leave CITES in order to resume trade. Um, and as you said, Japan is really only the current um, large legal market with an appetite for ivory. Um, we know at the summit, and actually just before the summit, that they, they invited, sorry, the Zimbabwean government invited uh, representatives from several uh, governments, including the EU, to come and tour their stockpiles to assess their interests, we think, uh, in, in buying the ivory. And there didn't seem to be much interest, quite honestly. Um, and so it is something that does need, again, a bit more ventilation. Which markets are they referring to? Who is going to buy this ivory? Um, and given the amount of work that's happened over the years to reduce demand and particularly drive behavioral change, you know, where is the appetite coming from? As well as where, does, where do the inflated numbers that they think they're going to generate uh, come from? How are they pricing their ivory? And how sure are they that they're going to get that, that sum? I think they touted a number of approximately uh, $2 billion worth of ivory stockpiles. So yeah, there, there are lots of questions around this proposed renewal that we haven't yet have seen any 
response or answers to. Okay, well, th thank you very much for that, Lindsay. And um, yeah, I, I guess we'll be paying close attention when, when CITES comes around later in the year to see what they actually do with this. Um, as we've touched on already earlier, um, the, the, UK, the UK's own ivory ban comes into effect from this coming Monday, the 6th of June. Ra Rachel, could you, could you tell us something about the history of, of how we've arrived at this point in the UK? Yes, sure. So um, in 2017, EIA lifted the lid on how the UK was actually the world's leading exporter of antique ivory, particularly to China and Hong Kong, which are known hotspots for illegal ivory trade. Um, so as Lindsay has mentioned um, before, there is robust evidence to suggest you know, that legal trade in ivory can stimulate demand and can stimulate poaching for illegal ivory. So we're really thrilled that as of the 6th of June 2022, the UK ivory ban finally comes into force. So from the 6th of June, uh, the UK effectively adds its name to a very long and ever-growing list of countries that are uh, moving towards shutting their ivory markets in recognition of how they pose a direct threat to the survival of elephants. Um, but this particular ban has been a long time coming. Um, it's long overdue. The government first pledged to close the UK ivory market in 2010, um, but then it took another seven years for them to actually launch a public consultation on the issue. Um, but we were really encouraged to see that, you know, the, the consultation received a record breaking 70,000 odd responses um, in, in favor of closing the markets. So, um, the majority were in favor of closing the market. So we, we worked alongside uh, a number of partner organizations um, in the conservation sector to raise awareness of the ban um, and, and its loopholes and to provide data and evidence of why the ban was necessary. Um, and we were really encouraged, you know, to see the high levels of public commitments throughout the process to elephant conservation. But it was even more encouraging, actually, to see how quickly the ban progressed through Parliament. It received huge cross-party support, which is no mean feat. Um, and it finally received royal assent in December 2018. Um, but the following year, um, more or less exactly a year after the, the ban received royal assent, um, we hit a bit of a roadblock. The antiques industry mounted a judicial review of the act on the basis that the ban was unlawful under EU law. So we have to bear in mind this was pre-Brexit, of course. Um, they, they argued uh, that the ban would negatively affect the antiques business. So we, we rallied our supporters. You know, we stood outside the Royal Court of Justice um, to call for this challenge to be overruled. And thankfully, the government did succeed to, in, in defending the act and defending the integrity of the act. Um, and the, the antiques judicial review failed. So we did overcome that hurdle. Um, and ever since, you know, we've been keeping pressure. We, we were keeping up the pressure on the UK government to finally implement the ban and to bring it into force. And that took a surprisingly long time. Um, we, I mean, from the time that, you know, from 2010 to 2022, that's an odd 12 years, right? So it took, it took, it took a long time. If a week's a long time in politics, that's several, several lifetimes. Yeah. So, so what, what was the reason for, for that delay between it, um, between the bill being uh, passed and then the act actually coming into force next Monday? Why has there been that delay? I mean, apart obviously from the legal yeah. challenge. Is, is it sort of, um, do you think it's, it's more about the government's um, intentions? Is it a, a lack of urgency? Or is it they've been um, fine-tuning it, getting it ready to go? I think the answer to that is a bit of bit of everything that you just mentioned. Um, <laughs> but I think primarily, yeah, we had the, the, the judicial review in 2019. But then, you know, issues such as Brexit posed huge issues on, you know, where this issue lay probably in the priority of the government and how to actually translate it into um, UK legislation, et cetera. 
Um, and obviously then, you know, we had the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 hit us and that delayed, delayed implementation uh, of this ban, but of a number of legislations, obviously. Um, so it's been quite a long trudge to get to, to where we are today. Um, but also in the interim period between, uh, you know, the ban receiving royal assent and actually June 6, 2022, the government's held a number of other public consultations on the enforcement of the ban, how it should be enforced, the mechanisms by which it should be enforced, for example, the sanctions that should be um, associated to the ban and flouting the ban, but also on whether the the ban could potentially be um, extended to other ivory bearing species. So, you know, this is a species such as hippos, for example, whose tusks, whose um, ivory um, is being laundered into the illegal elephant ivory market, um, which obviously has repercussions and ramifications on elephant poaching and stimulating demand for elephant ivory. So there's been quite a lot um, happening behind the scenes. But uh, and we do understand that a lot was going on. But we did stay firm. We stood firm. We maintained pressure on the government to, to act fast because we firmly believe that as long as legal trade is allowed, you know, elephants will continue to die at the hands of poachers. So we're, we're extremely grateful and thrilled that, you know, June the 6th has finally, finally come. <laughs> Excellent. Got there in the end. <laughs> um, and, and just so the people listening are clear, um, I, I, it's not a, an absolute ban on all ivory, is it? It's, it's a near comprehensive, near complete ban. Um, so what exactly is actually banned and what exemptions are there in the, uh, the UK Ivory Act? Yeah, good question. So I just note that obviously the, the clear um, regulations and, and, and the, the detail is actually available on the government website. I'll just briefly mention it here. But um, so as of today, it's illegal to deal in items made of or containing elephant ivory, regardless of how old these items actually are. There are certain exemptions, as you mentioned. Um, these vary from you know portrait miniatures, some musical instruments, um, some items with a specific low ivory content, and also sale of ivory uh, items to qualifying museums um, and sort of educational institutions. But crucially, any items that meet these exemptions have to be first registered on a dedicated government portal first. Um, and breaking the new law can now result in fines of up to a quarter of a million pounds or up to five years imprisonment. Um, and, you know, the ban is robust and it's one of the toughest we've seen, but loopholes do remain and we need to see them closed. Um, we need to keep a close eye on how the ban will be implemented um, and how it can be extended to other ivory bearing species, as I mentioned before. So, you know, as we've reached a milestone today, but it's definitely not a time to, to be complacent. And, and finally, now that the UK markets are close to ivory from Monday, um, what's the situation with our uh, neighbours in the EU. Uh, where, where, where's the European Union at in terms of um, a comparable ban? Yeah, uh, great question. So, um, you know, as, as we keep on going on about, you know, tackling ivory trafficking really requires consolidated international measures, um, and that includes shutting all legal markets across the world. You know, the UK has shut theirs, but that, that's that's a really good a really good uh, milestone. But we need everyone to do the same to ensure that you know no legal re markets remain where illegal ivory can be laundered into. So the EU introduced um, tough guidelines to restrict ivory trade into, within and out of the EU in December 2021, so relatively recently. Um, and though this is a promising step, we're concerned that most of these guidelines are, well, are exactly that, they're just guidelines. They're not actually transposed into legally binding regulations. 
Um, so we're, we'd like to now call on the UK to continue demonstrating leadership beyond its own ivory ban, um, you know, to, to ensure that its counterparts in the EU follow, follow, follow suit and introduce tougher and stricter laws. And what about um, ivory markets in the rest of the world? Yep, excellent point. Um, so now we've got the UK ban in place and other countries have introduced bans in the past. So, for example, we mentioned China closed their market in 2017. The US has closed their market. Singapore recently closed their market, as have numerous other African countries, including elephant range countries. Um, but the, the biggest remaining legal market is Japan. So as Lindsay, Lindsay highlighted before, um, Japan's now the biggest market since China closed its own in 2017. And we really would call on Japan to align itself with the international consensus that ivory is outdated and that it's dangerous. It's dangerous to elephants, it's dangerous to ecosystems, but also to governance, um, you know, given the links, the direct links between ivory trafficking and organized criminality. Um, so that's on, on, on Japan specifically. But I would also just bring back the fact that we've got this huge international meet, CITES meeting coming up in November 2022. Um, we're witnessing fresh attempts um, by Southern African countries to reopen trade, despite the fact that you know, the vast majority of countries are closing their markets and that um, you know, public, public appetites for ivory is a historic low. So we'll, we'll call on, we'd call on the UK and on other countries that already have established um, you know, um, legislation to ban ivory markets. We'd call on them to quash all attempts to restart trade and to water down the protection of elephants. Superb, and to hold the, hold the line and keep pushing it further out, I guess, yeah? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Lindsay, Rachel, thank you both very much for joining us today. It's been um, it's great chatting to you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please watch this space for future episodes and do check out our website at eia-international.org to find out more about our work. Thanks for joining us today and wherever you are, stay safe out there.